Hey guys, this is David. We wanted to let you know about an exciting opportunity we don't want you to miss out on. We are hosting our annual Awaken Conference Labor Day weekend in Dallas, Texas. Join 4,000 other young adults from all over the country and world to be a part of seeing an awakening of the hope of the world, which is the church of Jesus in our generation. Go to theporch.live to get a ticket before they sell out. Hope to see you at Awaken 2022. talk about all the time and crew this is one of his last weeks of summer and he has never been to a porch and so he wanted to come see it so now you say wait what oh she hasn't either yeah she has not been to another one either but um hey can y'all say hi and bye all right now y'all are gonna go with Ramsey and you gotta go home to mama or I'm gonna be in trouble so all right Hey, bye, y'all. Walk with Ramsey. Listen good. Don't tell mom about the cookies. All right. So, hey, everybody, tune. Bye. Yeah, love you. If you're joining us online or in the room, those are my kids who are here. And I had an illustration that was going to open with Monroe. And uh, JJ, our production director, was like, do you just want to bring them up there rather than do a picture? And, um, and my honest answer was it depends on how long they last before the meltdown happens. And so if you saw my son running around the aisles, I apologize. Um, I tried to tell him we're not that kind of church. And uh, <laughs> he didn't quite get it. And so on June 29th, 2018, my wife gave birth to our daughter. And we had had, yeah, thank you. You just saw it. There's the proof. I'd had a son, and having a daughter is just such a different deal, and, and I would see that over time. I mean, she's the, she's the most girly girl, which I'm not saying everybody has to be, but just the most girly girl uh, person I've ever met in my life. I mean, my son is constantly like, let's wrestle, let's fight, can we compete? And she is like, oh, let me hold the baby, let me hold the baby. And having a newborn has only made her even more like, now I have a real live baby doll. And... I mean, she wants to wear dresses all day long. She changes outfits like 16 times a day, which is only like three less than her mom. And she, um, I'm totally kidding. And I'm gonna be in trouble for that later. But it just is a different thing. Cause when you raise a son, you're kind of like, all right, man, there's a lot of you know, dysfunction in the world caused by men. Together, we're gonna get there, son. And you're trying to raise him and just teach him to be God's man. And you know, not uh, just somebody that, contributes to the chaos in the world around you. And then when you have a daughter, you're like, okay, now I have to protect you from all of the craziness and the crazy men in the world around you, which is a, a much more significant thing. It's one, you're just, hey, just don't contribute. And the other one is, oh no. And I've just seen it play out and raising her. I know there's gonna be a lot of milestones in her life that will be significant ones when she 
uh, you know, grows up and goes through, goes into middle school and is embarrassed of mom and dad or hits puberty, that one's going to be real interesting. Or when she can drive a car for the first time, or when she goes on her first date, or when she goes off to college, it's just these, these milestone moments in front of us. And another milestone will be how she interacts with the faith, or does she become a believer? Hopefully she does, we certainly pray that she does. But the question in tonight's wrap-up of FAQ that I wanna answer will have a great deal with whether or not she does follow Christ. It's a question that has prevented a lot of people and confused a lot of people and discouraged a lot of people from following Christ. And it's the question of, is the Bible sexist? Is the Bible sexist? Like is Christianity, is Jesus? Does it have a, a preference over men? Is you know, the message of the New Testament and of the Bible as a whole, is it sexist? And so that's what I wanna walk through tonight. And let me say a couple of prefaces before we dive in. When it comes to exactly what exactly is sexist and what's not, there's some subjectivity to it. There's an opinion related to it. And certain things are just clearly showing a discrimination over someone's sex. And then there's other things where it, it just candidly isn't. In fact, in reading and preparing and studying, increasingly there's a lot of division over even what is sexism. For example, if I said, hey, on the first date, he opened the door for you. Is that sexist or not? Now, we're in Texas, so most of us would say, no, that's, that's not sexist, that's sweet. But there's a lot of people increasingly that would say, no, that's sexist, how dare you think that I can't open my own door? What's wrong with you? That's a thing. Even the idea of opening a door and holding it open for a woman, is that sexist or sweet? I, many of us would say sweet, but there's people in the world that would say it's not. In other words, there's some subjectivity. In fact, even on paying for a first date, which I would highly encourage, if you're gonna take her on a date and you're gonna take her time, you are paying. But even that is as sweet as that, and if it needs to be said, I mean, you can look it up right now, paying for the first date, is it sexist? You're gonna hit lots and lots of Cosmopolitan magazine and different things pop up. So there's some subjectivity in regards to that. But I wanna make the case that the person of Christ is the single most pro-woman person who has ever lived. And I also wanna make a case that the Christian movement has been the single greatest force for human rights, period, but for women in general, and is the most pro-force for women that has ever existed. In order to do so, I've gotta cover a lot of historical ground and bring a lot of us into a bigger perspective, perspective on why that is the case, and candidly, why you think the way that you do. But before I go there and bring up some uh, historical and academic and, and research-based things, I wanna say this. If you have been in a church context, and I'm speaking specifically to the ladies, and you have felt discouraged, inferior, less than in any way, I am sorry. And that is not at all consistent with what we're gonna see in Scripture. And we're gonna walk through God's design and God's creation. And I know a lot of people, maybe just listening down the road or listening online, have felt that and experienced that. And if you've ever experienced anything like that for me, will you please forgive me? Because that is not God's heart. 
And his design is so incredible and beautiful and his image is reflected. And I hope that tonight is a strengthening of God's amazing design in male and female. So I wanna walk through four things. I wanna walk through the world before sin, that's as God designed it. Then I wanna walk through the world before Christ and the world of women before Christ. And then I wanna walk through the world of women because of Christ and men. And then our world today without Christ. So first, we're gonna cover, hey, the world very quickly, the world before sin. So this is Genesis chapter one. If you take notes, the world before sin, God creates the world. And on the very first page of the Bible, he says, let us make mankind in our image. And it says this, Genesis chapter one, as in the first chapter, first page. In the image of God, God created mankind. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. One of the biggest lies in our world right now is that uh, either men exclusively, uniquely, or even majorly reflect the image of God. That's not true. From page one, God said male and female have been created to reflect the image of God. And the masculine qualities, and even of that has gotten so distorted. But inside of males and females, you see the image of God. God reflected in our world. And every person that is in this room or ever listens that has ever lived has eternal value, biblically speaking, not because of how they look, where they work, where they were born, what they've done or haven't done, but because they have been made in the image of God. And nothing can take that away, nothing can change that, And as Christians, because the Bible says that, we have a framework now to approach the conversation. In other words, a lot of people in life, without the Bible, without a compass, something that's informing how they think and how they believe and what is right and wrong, they're going off their opinion. And there's a lot of people inside of the world that are fighting for something based on their opinion. And as Christians, we have the strongest argument for, hey, here's why every person is worthy of being treated with respect and dignity and care regardless of what they've done or haven't done or who they are because they have been made in the image of God unlike anything else in creation. They're a divine image bearer of such great value, Jesus would give his life on the cross for them. So that was God's design. And he created man in his image and he put him on earth. And that lasted about three minutes. And sin entered the world. And everything got fractured. And all of a sudden, this working together relationship of male and female became riddled with division, animosity, hostility, a desire for one another's roles, a rejection of God, a fracture in relationships and the ability to keep relationships. And Eventually, because of the product of sin and our world, that led to some real big distortions. I mean, we'd say the list would be too great to number throughout history, but one of the divisions that happened was abusive leadership and relationship styles from men. And God never created the world to be one where one male or female treated with less dignity the opposite sex because they were of the opposite sex. But sadly, that is the case today in many places. And it's sin anytime it exists. 
So I wanna paint a picture of the world before Jesus arrived, or candidly, the world that Jesus arrived into. Because like I said, the way that you think about you know, rights, people, has been so shaped, whether you're a Christian or not, by the Judeo-Christian, in other words, by biblical thinking, that we just take it for granted. We think everybody, we think you know, our founders, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. That's not accurate. They believe those are evident for them, or they believe those are self-evident. There's a lot of people in human history that would disagree. And in, candidly, a tragic way, they didn't fully live out those beliefs. And yet there's a lot of people around the world today that wouldn't say men and women are equal. Billions that wouldn't say that. The reason why we think that is because of Christian influence in the way that we think in our society, whether or not it's as strong as it once was. That is a biblical idea. And as Christians, we have the benefit of saying, this is what God says. Every person, male and female, deserves dignity and respect. But that wasn't always the case in terms of the culture. What do I mean? So second point, the world before Jesus. Let me paint a picture. Anyone know when Christianity was started, what the name of the empire that existed was? Roman Empire. You saw the movie Gladiator, boom, you got it. All right, Roman Empire conquered the known world. And here's how the Romans thought about men and women. So I'm gonna cover a few buckets. How they thought about women, how they thought about marriage as it related to a woman and male's or husband's role inside of that, and daughters specifically. Because it is so distant from how we think about it, it's jarring. But the world that Jesus showed up in, the world before Jesus' influence took place, here's some of the teachings. Women were seen as legally worthless. If they were married, they were the property of their husband. They couldn't make the decision to get married. They were underneath the decision-making of their father. They were not just seen legally as they couldn't testify in court. They didn't have those types of rights. Some of the most prominent teachers of the day taught this outright. Teachers, you've heard the names before. You don't remember anything they wrote because you did you know, the, uh, whatever the abbreviated version of reading in high school thing is, but teachers like Aristotle. You know what Aristotle thought about women? This comes from uh, his book, The Generation of Animals. The female, as it were, is a mutilated male without a soul. How about that? Tweet that. That's Aristotle. Not a Christian, by the way. Hopefully that's clear. Plato. You maybe heard of Plato? Remember Plato, Plato's Republic? He wrote a letter called Timaeus, or he wrote a work called Timaeus, and in it he says, it is only males who were created by the gods and are given souls. It's only men who have souls. Those, this is crazy, man. Those who live rightly, men who live rightly, in this life will return to the heavens. But those who are cowards will come back in the nature of women. <laughs> you will be reincarnated. I mean, that's shocking to you. Why? Because there's something inside of you that says, oh, dude, <laughs> that is messed up, man. We did not cover that in high school whenever we are doing the cheat sheets or whatever. What is that called? Spark notes. There it is. A bunch of cheaters up here in the front. <laughs> Went through high school. Reading the Spark Notes version of everything. All right, it didn't get any better in Jewish culture. So, hey, that man was Romans. They worshiped Zeus, Aphrodite, you know, probably the Jewish men and women, which should have had a better understanding because they had the Old Testament. But they were not living in line in light of that. In Jewish culture, women were forbidden to learn. 
Education was not something offered to women. Women were not allowed in the synagogue to hear teaching. Josephus, the most famous historian of Jewish descent, he's where we get so much of our Jewish understanding outside of the Bible, he said this, this is powerful. The woman is in all things inferior to the man. Got really quiet in here, didn't it? And you hear that and it's like, what? And one, the Talmud, which is kind of a commentary on Old Testament, just rabbinical teaching said, I would rather have the Torah burned than have it taught to a woman. Yeah. There's a first century prayer that was recorded that said, blessed are you eternal God, who's not made me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Can you imagine you show up to church and that's how Josiah started the announcement? Hey God, we just wanna pray. At first, I just wanna thank you, God. I mean, it's so jarring, it's insulting. And the reason it's insulting is because Jesus did something that would change everything. It didn't just change the general perspective on women, it changed the way that people thought even about daughters. Did you know that in the Roman Empire, which again, remember that's where this whole thing started, Christian, Christianity launched from. For every 100 women, there was 140 men. Why? Because when couples, Roman couples would have children, if it was a male, by law, required, by law, it was required that they raise the child. It's called the law of Romulus, or the law of Rome is the first law, if it's a male. But if it was a female, only the first, if she was a firstborn female, was she required to be kept. And a practice called exposure, which is horrific when you hear it, would take place where people would have a baby girl and then they would expose it or leave it out in the road, roadside, to die. This is a first century letter of a Roman soldier that wrote to his wife and she was pregnant and he said, if while I'm away at war, you deliver the child, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it. There was inscriptions found in a city, basically a city of Delphi, and they basically had a census taken of all the families, it's first century. Out of 600 families, they got the list of everybody's family, 600 of them. Six had more than one daughter. Think about that. The context and the abuse and the distortion towards God's design of men and women was horrific. And this was the world in which Jesus showed up and nothing would be the same as a result. As it related to marriage, the average age of marriage for Romans and for Jewish daughters was between 12 and 13. In fact, Josephus writes that a Jewish daughter should get engaged at 12 so that by the time she hits 13, she will have all of her reproductive years to attempt to give birth to children. Now you hear that and you're like, huh, <laughs> no he didn't, uh-uh. Because for us it's like, man, that is illegal and messed up. And the daughter had no choice in the matter. And I'm gonna show you in a second how Christianity, even in the first century, that went away for Christians. But the rights to divorce, sexual, sleeping around basically was commonplace for husbands. But if a wife did it, she could be put to death. This was not a culture that even suggested there was equality. It was in law, you're a fool if you think that there is. The greatest teachers of the day made clear. And Christianity would show up and change 
all of that. There were two occasions, the Roman Senate, again, the Roman Empire had a Senate, kinda like we do today. On two occasions, two different bills were put before the Senate to mandate marriage for men. Think about that. That comes before, for all the craziness in our government, if they were at a place where they had to go, okay, we've gotta do something to get men to marry, which honestly wouldn't be that bad of a deal, guys. Pull the trigger. But all that today, in that day and age, he's saying men wouldn't marry because they could sleep around with whoever they wanted, prostitutes. Why would I want the responsibility and burden that comes along with that? And so that's the world before Jesus. Much of the world today exists, as we'll see in a second. But I wanna look at how Jesus would show up and say, you have broken and you are distorting one of the Im- half of the image bears on the planet. And it is an offense to God. And so the world of women because of Jesus. As I said, Jesus would show up and from the jump, everything would change. One of the first conversations, the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in the New Testament, you know who it's with? A woman. It was uncommon for men to speak to women in that day. To make eye contact could have been seen as inappropriate. Certainly to someone who wasn't your wife not to speak to them. And Jesus shows up, we're told in John chapter four, and he's walking through the road and there's this woman who comes up to a well to get a drink of water and Jesus begins to go into this long conversation with her. It's the longest conversation he has with anybody and it's the very first time he tells anyone, I'm the Messiah. And it was a woman who had been divorced five times. She was an outcast among outcasts. She wasn't even Jewish. And he said, you're exactly the type of person I came to restore your dignity and your worth to you and to the world around you. And in John chapter four, the disciples see him, they walk up on Jesus having this conversation and they're astonished because he's talking to a woman. It says this, John chapter four, verse 27, his disciples just then came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? And they marveled. You ever read those verses? You're like, why would they marvel? He's talking about because it didn't happen. They were seen as less than other than to Jesus who said, they're loved, they're not less. And he would do so over and over and over again. Jesus, unlike the time that discouraged women or or barred women from learning, had women disciples. The word for disciples, a learner that would follow him around, that were a part of his group, that he taught actively, proactively. In fact, if you remember the Mary and Martha conversation, interaction, which maybe if you've been in church, you've heard that they go over to Martha's house and Martha's in the kitchen, she's cleaning and you know, making pita bread or whatever they had for meals back then. And his sister, her sister Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha's like, what are you, what are you doing, Mary? Get in here and help me cook. Wait, that's not for us, that's for them. And Jesus says, She's not going anywhere. She's chosen what is better, but he actively encouraged it. In fact, in that day, sexual sin, distortedly, was always attributed to the male. The law didn't teach that, but it would be taught that sexual sin would have been because the woman drew the man off sides, and so a woman was caught in adultery in John chapter eight, and the law said both the male and, or the man and the woman should have been thrown before Jesus, but the religious leaders caught the woman, threw her before Jesus. And he bends down, tenderly writes something. And as they say, the law says she should die. What do you say? 
He stands up and he says, let whoever has not sinned throw the first stone. Ironically, the only one who had not sinned was him. And they walk away one by one and Jesus just there with the woman says, where are your accusers? She says, they've gone. And he says, go and sin no more. I don't condone what you've done and I don't condemn you. I came to die for you because you are an image bearer of God. And you may live in a society that doesn't promote that, push that, but that's the truth. We see this consistently taught after Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven by his followers. Peter would say this in 1 Peter chapter three, and we're so used to this that it's no longer like profound to us, but it was jarring to the first century who lived in that context that I'm describing. 1 Peter chapter three, verse seven says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect or honor as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So he's talking to husbands and he says something and this is where people go, whoop, ah, okay, weaker partner, that's it, Bible sexist. Well, Peter's saying something pretty profound. He's saying, hey, I, when it comes to husbands, here's how I want you to treat, you know, the Jewish society, everyone around says their property, you don't have to listen to them. Uh, if they step out of line, you can do basically anything, nope. I want you to live and be considerate of their feelings, of who they are. I want you to live, not just, don't even treat them with equal. It says, treat them with honor. How do you honor someone? Everyone, I mean, you've probably never thought about it, but instinctively, most of us probably know if the Queen of England came in this room, you would know and you'd give her your seat and you would know how to honor her, you would defer to them. And that's what Peter just said, it's a whole new day. You treat them with honor and with respect. So what about the weaker vessel or partner? The same word, is, it's translation for delicate. And then today, bizarrely, there's something of like, oh, no, I'm, not, I'm not weaker, I'm not weaker, look at me, I'm so strong. And Peter is saying, hey, treat them with a delicacy or be more gentle and respectful with them. It has nothing to do with value. People immediately run to value. You saying I'm weaker, you saying I'm less? No. This is a bottle of water. This is an iPhone. If I drop this, nothing happens. If I drop this, like I did last week, the screen can break. Which one is more valuable? The water? Really? <laughs> You're buying your water, bro. It's a phone. Something being more delicate doesn't make it any less valuable. In fact, there's plenty of things that are much more valuable and Peter is saying, hey, you are accountable. When he says your heirs, they are co-heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. He says, they are heirs. They have a father in heaven who you're gonna give an account to. You are dating or married to the boss's daughter. You should tread lightly. That's what he just said. And yeah, clap for that, there you go. And then he said something that even is more profound. Hey, and if you don't do this, I mean, look, when you break down the verse, everyone goes, weaker partner, you said I'm weaker, huh? Bench press, right now, let's go, let's go. It's like. He's saying, you use your strength to serve, protect, die to yourself. And if you don't, it will hinder your prayers. I mean, so that nothing 
will hinder your prayers. As in, uh, if you don't treat the boss's daughter well, he's not going to listen as closely. This was radical. And it would continue to be radical, as we're gonna see. It changed when people flocked to the church. In Galatians chapter three, verse 26 to 28, the very first writing that we see is blatantly clear, men and women are totally equal, is Galatians 3, verse 26. In Christ, all of you are children of God through faith. All of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He is saying, everyone is now defined most by Christ. And that is the most significant thing about a person. This, Thomas Cahill was a, Roman, or was a historian that wrote, this was the very first time in all of ancient literature we can find someone, hey, there is no difference, male and female are totally equal. And we hear this and we go, dude, that's so crazy. At the time that people would think that even needs to be said. This was new. And when the New Testament was new, this was revolutionary. And it's the reason you think the way that you do. And let me just tell you what happened is we would see in church history, and if you study any of this, there's a great book by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. He's got so many different great works, but he just tracks with incredible documentation the explosive movement of the church. And one of the things that you see with the church is that when the New Testament was new, when this movement began, women flooded to the church. Two-thirds of the first century church was women in a time where two-thirds of the people alive on earth were men. They flooded there. To say that the New Testament or the Bible or Christianity is chauvinistic would have been laughable to them because women found for the very first time, I can show up and I am treated with dignity. Unlike, remember the categories I referenced earlier? of, hey, when it came to marriage, uh, when it came to children, when it came to daughters, women flooded there because of the rights and the way that they were treated with dignity so distinctly. In fact, Roman historian, there's so many of them, I don't have time to list them all, but one of the different critics of Christianity at the day who would write, whenever they would wanna burn in a dig, they would say, look, Christians, they're just made up of a bunch of like poor people and women. That was one of the biggest attacks that they would give. Uh, there's a guy named, Menasius Felix, we'll just go with Felix. He wrote an apologetic work called Octavius, and his criticism was that Christianity is made of the lowest of society and gullible women. Over and over, there's critiques of like, it's just women and you know, nobody's in there. Because women found a home and they found dignity in every socioeconomic status flooded to the church because it was there that they found and were treated, you are made in the image of God. They were given leadership opportunity. In Romans chapter 16, we don't have time to go there, Paul is writing and he says, hey, our sister Phoebe greets you. She's a deaconess in the church of Acacia. What's a deaconess? It is a leader inside of the church. The Roman historian Pliny the Elder, which is like a great rapper name, but he wrote something and, and he was not a Christian and he basically was like, I'm trying to figure out this Christian movement and cult. So I found two Christians. I found these two slave women who were deaconesses at their church. Here's what they told me. That a slave that had no worth in the eyes of Rome was given leadership dignity 
and value and women flooded. Unlike marriage, like I said, the average age of 12 or 13. Inside of the Christian church, women, it wasn't just, hey, you're gonna marry because I said. Women were given for the first time the choice to marry when they wanted to. And the average age moved up to 18, which is thankfully in striking zone of being legal. But when you compare that to 13, it was radical. And not only that, inside of marriage, men were told something that is like, uh, duh, to us, but was radical of the day. Hey, you don't sleep with anybody but her, and you honor her, and you die to yourself, and you love each other, and you pursue oneness together. And by the way, you don't divorce her. Women didn't have the right to divorce, and men were told, hey, you cannot divorce her. You stay with her, and you make it work, and you fight for her. All of which is beautiful today, and we're all like, yay, that's, that's how it should be. No one had ever seen it be like that. And women flooded in because they were given something that they had never had before. Dignity, tragically. And the church flooded with these. And in terms of children or daughters, as I said, there was a vast underpopulation of women because daughters were given up, and Christians began to change that because Christians would redefine adoption. I mean, this is so historical, so stay with me, everybody. Adoption, how you think of it, what do you think of? First thing comes to mind. A baby, right? Brad and Angelina, 17 kids walking around. That's not how Rome thought of it. Adoption was a legal process that adults did. In other words, every emperor that you've ever heard of or will ever heard of, and SparkNote section doesn't even know what emperors I'm talking about, all were adopted. Why? Because at that day and age, if somebody had a valuable estate, they would go, well, look at my kids, and this is not a good idea. I'm gonna adopt him. And they would hand select. Adoption was among adults until Christians showed up. And all those babies laid up by the riverside or laid up by the road, they'd show up and they would adopt them. They would take them into their homes. Because they said every person is valuable, has dignity. Abortion became extinct among Christian communities. This is even a reference in early Christian literature. And there's so much debate around our topic. You know who was not pro-choice in the first century? Women. And don't lose me on all the political leanings of today. They were not given a choice. Men were. And Christians said, no, you, you don't commit abortion anymore. And as a woman, you go, well, you know, maybe she wanted one. They were never given a choice. Abortion happened because of abusive men who said she's pregnant and I don't want the baby. And this is a time where there's no antibiotics, there's no doctors. The ways that happened was gruesome and left the woman sterile. And Christians said, no. And they introduced a revolution that your thought process throughout this message is directly connected to Whatever feelings, emotions, concerns, things that you're thinking of, of like, oh, that's weird, no, I'm not comfortable with that, is because that revolution would go far and wide as the church would go far and wide. Finally, a world today without Jesus, and I gotta hurry. Still today, anytime the presence of the people of God and the word of God and the son of God has not impacted people's life, today in our world, there is not an appropriate 
equality based on the image of God that exists in male and female. In other words, any time that Christianity and the message of Jesus has not begun to spread places, all over the world today, people still think like the Romans did. What do I mean? Here's some examples. Man, I'm gonna touch the tip of the iceberg because it is tragic. Billions of people live and they don't think like you think. It's not natural. It's been informed by the people of God and the word of God. In China, there is a 40 million gap or 40 million number of quote unquote missing girls because of decades of the one child policy that led to sex selective abortion. China said you can only have one kid. And through the process of infanticide and sex selective abortion, now 40 million less women live or 40 million less women than men. United Nations has estimated, this was from 2022, between 150 and 200 million more boys than girls are alive because of selective abortion in sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. In Africa, female genital, female genital mutilation impacts the lives of three million girls every year. That is all of the population of Dallas every year. People who were made in the image of God have a soul who Jesus gave his life for on the cross. It is not normal the way that you think. Child marriage is a global issue. 12 million under the age of 18 get married every single year. In Afghanistan, significantly, especially since the fall and the rise of the Taliban, earlier this year has become the worst place for women to live today, according to Human Rights Watch and the Georgetown Institute. Only 7% of women have a bank account or access to one. 80% of women are not employed due to the Taliban's restrictions on where they can work, when they can work, and what they should wear. The Taliban has banned secondary or higher education at any level. They dictate what they wear, how they can travel, if they can work, what kind of cell phones they can have. And you may think, well, man, it's just, we've all seen crazy Taliban. Let's go Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, today, women do not have the freedom to leave the country. They cannot get a passport. They cannot travel outside of their house without the permission of their guardian. Who's a guardian? Their dad or their husband. They cannot get married without a co-signing of their dad on the marriage contract. And they cannot leave that marriage under any circumstances. The husband can marry whenever, whoever he wants, and marry up to four women at one time. Saudi Arabia didn't allow women, you know, Saudi Arabia, our president just flew over there to get more oil deal. Until 2018, women could not drive cars in Saudi Arabia and could be prosecuted or even have significant costs to themselves if they showed an ankle in public. And this world that has not been touched by Jesus does not believe equality is something that is true or should be reflected in Iran. FIFA World Cup, everybody familiar with that? May 29th, 2022, which is, oh yeah, that's this year. The World Cup was taking place. And in Iran, they had qualified to semifinals or they were qualified and they had a game that was gonna take place inside of Iran. At the game, women who attempted to enter into the arena or into the stadium, despite having purchased tickets, were sprayed with pepper spray because women are not allowed to see sporting events. I mean, this is everywhere. We don't have time to go into all the different Qatar. In order for a woman to get married, she has to have the permission of some guardian in her life. And if she, if she leaves the house without her husband's permission, if she refuses to have sex, 
if she refuses or leaves and does something without telling him, she has been deemed as disobedient and there are consequences. This doesn't even cover Indonesia, India, Pakistan. Anytime the people of God are not anchored to the word of God and that presence is not felt there, the way that you think is not normal. And let me just, this is the last thing I'm gonna cover. This is existent in our culture today that reams and yells, you sexist bigots. And yet, American Western culture increasingly is influenced in a way that is apart from Jesus. And when that happens, a couple things happen. You either undervalue women or you misvalue and value the wrong things. What do I mean by that? Our culture swings to the other pendulum and says, hey, women, you're valuable because of what's between your legs or what your body looks like or your sexuality or a host of other different things. Why do I say that? Every cultural uh, epitome of culture in every direction, movies, music, everything, communicates this message on a daily basis and it objectifies women, which is sexist. What do I mean? Okay, here's some of the more popular songs. This is from Freaky Deaky by Tyga and Doja Cat. Ready? My little shorty, always on time. I pick you up, come outside. Let's go for a ride. Body likes December on summertime. Itty bitty waist, but I'm just gonna let y'all read the rest of it. You don't think a culture that continues to listen and some of the top songs in music, let's go to the next one, WAP, Cardi B. <laughs> listen to me, hold on, we're almost done. There's some whores in this house. Repeat times 12. <laughs> I'm not even gonna read the rest of it, but as Christians, let me, let me just speak to you ladies really quick, and, and all, of them, all of us. A culture that encourages or promotes women calling themselves or other people whores is an inferior, toxic, evil culture. And identifying yourself, yeah, you can golf clap for that or what? And as Christians, we have never thought all cultures are created equal. We think we have a superior culture in Christ that says women are made in the image of God. They have eternal value. They're worthy of being treated with dignity and respect. And their value does not come from their body, what they wear, what they look like. It comes from the fact that they're made in the image of God. And men, we have a responsibility to make sure we don't participate, communicate, encourage anything that further objectifies sexually. And women, you have a responsibility to make sure you don't continually endorse, promote things that say, I am valuable because of my sex or my body. And we see the drift happening, and so it undervalues, misvalues, or it redefines. I mean, this is how tragically in need of Jesus our culture is. The nominations for Woman of the Year among NCAA came out last week, or have been out recently. One of the nominations was Leah Thomas. Leah, for the first three years of college, swam as a man and swam the final year as a female. I mean nothing but love and care and concern for anyone who doesn't know Jesus. But when we have a society that says, 
where are my whores at? And the winner of a women's award swam with the men 18 months ago. You can see we are assaulting the image of God on humanity. As I think about my daughter, and if you're in the room, I hope you know, no matter what story you have, no matter what amount of pain, damaged goods, however you see yourself, you have such eternal value. It would be impossible to overstate how valuable you are, no matter what you've done, where you're from, what you look like, because you are an image bearer of God Almighty. And he gave his life on the cross for you. And he gave his life on the cross for every person who's ever lived because they are made in his image. And he set apart or set on fire a revolution that all people should be treated with dignity and with respect because they are made in my image. My kids, you just saw them, I've shared before, have had to teach or I've had to help them understand what the value of a coin is. They've been doing chores around the house and they'll get paid in various amounts and teaching them, oh, that's a quarter. Oh, that's a nickel. That's a dime, that's a penny. And if, for us, you're like, duh. But when you're, don't, you can't read, you can't fully understand it, you're like, oh, how do you know if it's a quarter? Is it silver? No, um, there's ones that are silver that are not quarters. Okay, is it, is it because it's big? Is it like, hey, the smaller it is, the less it's worth? No, the dime really threw that thing off. Is it like, what, what is, how do I know what's, what the value of it is? Whose image is on it? How do you know how valuable you are? whose image is on you. And no matter what happens for the rest of your life, you are of an eternal value. And anyone who treats you as less is operating against God's design, an amazing creation. And now as Christians, we're called to go promote a superior culture to a world that desperately needs it. Let me pray. Father, I pray for anyone who's carrying baggage from hurt related to you, hurt related to the church, hurt done in the name of you that wasn't an accurate representation of your plan, your love, your design, that you would heal and bind up those hurts, that they would have a conversation if they need to. I pray for anyone who has never trusted in Jesus as the payment of their sin, has never accepted the eternal gift that God, you gave us through your son because you loved us so much and saw our value as of eternal worth. Tonight would be that night. We love you. We thank you for Jesus who's changed the world and is changing our lives. We worship him in song, amen.